Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Did you know Sherlock's launched SL Man in the autumn of 2019? It's the modern man's guide to a more stylish life. Think Sherlock's for men. Twice a week, the SL Man team bring men everything they need to know, from the coolest trainers and the hottest bars to the newest podcasts, grooming tips and mental health advice. You name it, SL Man has it covered. So please spread the word to the men in your life. We're talking husbands, boyfriends, brothers and colleagues and help us to help them live a more stylish life. Life was founded in 2012 by Eva Hamilton MBE, who had worked with marginalised groups for over 30 years. Set up to help reduce youth reoffending through reintegration and effective rehabilitation, every offender fortunate enough to find a place with the charity becomes four times less likely to return to prison and four times more likely to find a job. Today, I'm joined by Eva, caseworker Corey Anderson, and Ross Abadji, who's an ex-offender and now Key for Life mentor, to talk to us about their individual stories and to explain how you listening can get involved and do your bit for Key for Life. To you all, welcome to this Sherlock's podcast special. Eva, before we talk about Key for Life, can you tell us a bit about you and your background? Okay. Well, firstly, thank you for inviting us here today. I've had an interesting background. I will share with you some of the challenges I faced as a youngster, probably why I've set up this charity. I was born into a Protestant family in Ireland, an affluent family. We had our challenges growing up because my father was quite a violent alcoholic. So I would say until I was 14, at times it was pretty difficult at home. I then probably went a bit wayward when I was 16, 17. I was in great schools, but caught up in drugs, had all sorts of things happen to me. So in that rather chaotic part of my life, I did go to Paris. I didn't do a traditional degree. I went to the Sorbonne. Then I came back and did a business secretarial course in Oxford. And I happened to meet a woman called Dame Julia Cleverton, who was at that time one of the directors of the Industrial Society. So I did a year with her and then decided actually secretarial work wasn't for me. And I went around the world. And it was actually my first stop was India. And I ended up at Mother Teresa's by complete coincidence. Normally, I faint at the sight of blood. And I met this doctor and he asked me, would I come and help them for a few days to help the people who are dying? And when I got to Mother Teresa's home for the dying, it was actually extraordinary. I was working for her number two and I had a calling. And at that point, didn't Was she alive at this point? She was alive, but she was away. But I worked for her number two. It was an extraordinary experience. And I had my calling that I was never going to earn lots of money when I was on this planet, that I was here to serve. And literally, it was like a bolt of light people talk about, but it really was an extraordinary initiation. So when I left India, I then went on to Australia. At that point, I was doing things I shouldn't be doing, and I ended up having my fourth lung collapse. So I had to be taken back to Ireland. Had a big, big operation. 
and they cut out half my lung, found a disease. And it was at that point, it was a big turning point in my life, that I went, ended up back at a new charity called Business in the Community, which was Prince Charles's charity. And my old boss had moved there. I was under a rehabilitation. I wasn't allowed to do much because of my lungs. But at that time, Prince Charles came up with an idea. He and you president. were working for the charity? Just came back, having been quite ill. And the Prince of Wales was the president. And he had come up with an idea at the end of the 80s. He wanted more businesses, leaders in Britain to help people in the inner cities. So he came up with the idea of seeing us believing in right place, right time. I was very, very lucky and I was given the job of setting that programme up for Prince Charles. So I ran that for him for five years, taking out about 600 business leaders. So we'd go into inner city housing estates, homeless projects to really see the problems on the front line of Britain. And it was unbelievable. And it showed me just even going to meet the IRA in Belfast. And then either the Prince of Wales would come with us or the business leaders would all go back to Kensington Palace or St James's Palace and report back to the Prince and what they do. Can but I just say, we don't give him enough credit, actually. Oh, he's amazing. He, he's Absolutely. really, in terms of the environment, in terms of what you've just described. Oh, so forward-thinking. He, he really is. I think we're tough on him, but actually he's done he is so much. one of the most remarkable men I think I've ever met. And it was actually, the point there was when I was 28, I burnt out and ended up being put into a hospital in Ireland. I was out for a year basically and that was a big wake up call so the trauma and the shock and the pain I was carrying. Then when I came back to business in the community my passion was homelessness and it was then that I set up the homeless work which was a new model to get homeless people back to work. So I ran that probably for the best part of 10 years and what was amazing about Ready for Work was that how it happened was that I was in a homeless shelter in Bristol doing a recce for a visit and found four men injecting their feet with heroin because they were the last veins left in their body. And on the train on the way back to London, I had a light bulb moment, which was if children can go and work experience, why don't I apply the same to the homeless? Got back to London and found about 12 companies, including BT, Reuters, Virgin Records, and said, will you offer rough sleepers work placements? They all thought it was a crazy idea. <laughs> said, we'll do it. And of the 14 we put out over two weeks, 13 completed them. And then Marks and Spencer rang me six weeks later and said, we've heard what you've done. We'd like to offer you half a million pounds and a thousand placements. So I negotiated. I said, oh, my God, a thousand placements. We negotiated on 600 and half a million pounds. And they very kindly, we rolled that out to 23 cities over six years. How did you get BT on board? So you said you went along and you said, will you take these homeless people and give them yeah. placements? Yeah. Because well, changing knew, that mindset, right, right, they knew They knew me so from you had seniors in. believing and they'd been okay. out in the inner cities with me and they kind of believed, right, let's give it a try. None of them really believing it would work. So that was the start of it. And it seeing as believing is still going brilliantly. But in 2006, funny enough, I've just been with somebody this, just this afternoon from Bain and Company. Bain, the management consultants, mm -hmm. gave us loads of pro bono work. And it's all about... So when the homeless... I always thought when I was running that something is missing here. And a lot of our homeless, 30% would end up back in the streets. They had a job and they had a home. So when you ask them, why are you back on the streets? They always cited the fact that they're demons that come back to haunt them. So no one knew what I'd been through. And this is why all my charities, I've gone through the pain that these men have gone through. I'm not sitting here running this charity, which is the point of sharing with you some of my inner things that mm -hmm. I don't normally talk about, is the fact that... I knew at that point that what was missing was a programme to unlock people's pain, right? So after 20 years of 
seeing that many homeless were back on the streets, I then left business in the community. At that time, as a mother with a daughter who had a heart problem, we moved then to Somerset, where my husband came from, and I set up a brand new charity called the Warrior Programme, and that was all about helping homeless and soldiers unlock their pain without going back over the drama. We don't need to go into the story. What we want to do is unlock your pain without you having to live that pain. So that's what that does, and it still does. I helped 600 soldiers with PTSD until 2011, and then things happened, and I decided to move away from that. And in that period in 2011, when I stopped running that charity, I found myself falling into a bit of a low period again. And at that point, the only thing that worked for me were the horses. So every time I went outside to my horses, in that day when I just couldn't face the world and I wasn't facing the world, it was the horses that would kind of talk to me unconsciously because I bring horses into the prison, which Mm -hmm. we can talk about later. Mm -hmm. But anyway, the horses helped me. And it was then I thought, right, you know what? I'm going to put a brand new charity together, focusing riots were taking place the UK was in complete meltdown and then I thought let's get a new model that reflects the unlocking the pain the employability and the ongoing support and that's what this seven-step model does I mean you are a remarkable remarkable woman god what a life you've lived when were you awarded your MBE gosh 2005 wow let's talk about key for life so it was 2012 after Mm. this period of time when things hadn't been brilliant yeah Talk to us a little bit more about why offenders, why young men in prison, why was it that particular group of society that you wanted to help? I think it was twofold. I think when I saw the children who were as young as eight rioting, I realised that, you know, we were about to create a future society that was really, really going to be, you know, all sorts of challenges. As we're seeing now, lots of these children were out of control. So there was that. How do we get to children much younger? And then if you look at the most marginalised people in society, I'd already worked with the homeless. I'd already worked with, you know, soldiers, funnily enough, used to make up a quarter of the homeless rec service personnel. But the other area I was always keen on was prisons and people who've been ostracised from society. How do you integrate them back in? So it was at that point when I devised the seven-step model, I went to a prison in Bristol called Ashfield, a young offenders institution, and Serco were running it at the time. And they knew me from old because I just run a program. And this is with my military, not with my new hat. And the governor then, Brian Anderson, said, I'm going to take a leap of faith and let you into my prison. So we'd never run this program before. And what happened when we arrived at the prison is I took in a whole load of military trainers. And when we walked into the gym, which is where the 23 boys were, they're all 15 to 18 year olds. What I didn't realize was they were the toughest gang leaders in Britain. So they showed us zero respect. When we walked in, they didn't even notice we were there. And the military trainers said, you've pitched this wrong. We want to get out. This isn't what we signed up to. So I was like, oh, my God, please just wait half an hour until the horses come in. And then when the horses arrived, it was extraordinary. We had two mares, two female horses, and they were in the yard beside the gym. And they went absolutely ballistic. They were cantering around, whinnying, get us out of here. They could feel the energy that these prisoners were you know, showing. So, and then what happened was the minute the prisoners saw the horses, they all hid under the chairs and they wouldn't come out of the gym. They were too scared to come out and they were too scared of the horses. So I realised at that point, actually, they had fear. And the minute that happened, we got them outside, we got them working with the horses, we brought in the music industry, we brought in Universal, we brought in Darkest Beast, who runs Island Records. 
He tried for six minutes to address them. No one would listen to him. No one would talk to him. And suddenly he mentioned a grime artist, Angel, and then everyone changed. So when he got me outside, he said, that was the worst six minutes of my life, what you did in that prison. I'm not bringing any will I am. At that point, Amy Winehouse, he was managing her. I'm not bringing her down. I only want grime. And within two weeks, we had a wonderful man called Ben Scar, who manages Dave, and wow. he came with Angel. Even I know who Dave is. <laughs> stinking of weed. And they had all the sniffer dogs all over them. And they all got in amazingly. And it was the start of an amazing journey. And that was the start. And those same boys that were on our programme, many of them are still involved in actual fact. One of them is Renardo, who works alongside Corey as a caseworker. And he's still with us seven wow. years later. So the charity started with you going into prison yeah. with horses and working with a group of young men. With a very clear path that we were taking them through, yes. And now it has evolved and there is the at-risk programme. Exactly. So for people listening, you don't know. So it's could you sex, explain yeah. the different facets of the charity? Okay, so the first thing just to say is the, the uh, seven-step model is made up of the horses, music, football. We work with QPR as well. That's the first stage, unlock. Then we train up mentors so we could train anybody from any walk of life. We've trained up this year alone already 100 mentors. And wow. what they then do is they then help these young men go through their journey, which is amazing. We then do employability. So mm -hmm. today we've just been in Brixton Prison preparing for the employers to come in next week. And that's where you get look at eye contact, handshakes. And if they're running a life of crime, which a lot of them only know a life of crime, what you've got to do is start showing them a new path, right? So that's the next stage. We then bring in companies to the prison and they will have a speed dating thing where you know, Georgie, you've done it. It's extraordinary. And you come in and interview our young men. They might never have been interviewed before. The minute they come out of prison, they'll have wonderful Corey and others at the gates welcoming them, which for many is a major thing because he's positive. We we don't want all their negative life there waiting for them. Mm. That's putting them back into their old place. The next thing we then do is within about 10 days of being out, they go and get suited and booted. And then they go on a work placement. You've obviously been awesome because you've had Maya. That is the change that can make the biggest change is getting them into a suit, taking them to the city, taking them into Sherlux, wherever it is they go. The crucial thing at the end is to ascertain how good they were, what they were good at, what they need to improve on. And then once they've done that, we bring them then down to Somerset for a residential. So the horses reappear, the football reappears, the music, all of the things, the tools we're teaching them. And then the second last stage is where they have support meetings every six weeks. So any of them alumni, any of them. So Ross has finished our program. He could still access that support. And then finally, they graduate. When they graduate, a good few of them will go on to be key mentors, which means they get an equivalent of an A-level. And that's when they give back to other men. And that's what, for me, has been one of the most humbling parts, as Corey is now part of the team, but he's done that. So has Ross. And they so are both the men. of you sitting here today started out on the programme and are now, well, yeah. you're a caseworker, you're a key mentor, right? Yeah. That's yeah. so powerful, isn't so it? So that's, that's the most powerful thing because then the men listen to them. And mm -hmm. then the different programmes we run, seven stages, we do one prison programme, which is 12 months long. We do an at-risk programme, which means they're in the community. They might have a, had a custodial sentence. Corey's been doing so brilliantly, and they, but they're at risk of going to prison again. Mm -hmm. So you work with people who, who are in prison, yeah. who've been to prison and are at risk of going to prison. Yeah. And then the third strand, which I have to tell you is I think probably the most challenging, but we need to get this one right, is the young children. Mm -hmm. So we currently tomorrow, Thursday, have a group from a school in Somerset 
and most of them are youngest as 10 years old, coming to us, and they're all one step away from prison. We've just had two of our men done for murder who are in Feltham at the moment who were already charged. They? they were 16, 17. That, to me is the age that we need to catch them really young. Yeah. So a lot of our work, that third strand, which is working in the schools, getting Corey's doing a wonderful film he'll tell you about, we need to take this film out and let them listen to mm. what their stories are mm. to stop these kids going down this path of destruction. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, in essence, what we do, three different sorts mm. of programmes. So I think this is a good moment. So Ross and Corey, you're here to tell us a bit about your story. So Corey, you told your story on Behind the Scenes. For people who haven't watched that episode, you must. But for people that haven't, can you yeah. talk us through your story? I grew up in northwest London and um, I grew up first, it was Neasden. And I grew up, obviously, I had my four sisters and my mum. I never had a father from a young age. So first it was actually just me. So before my two little sisters came in, my two older were actually adopted. So it's just me and my mum. My dad passed away, unfortunately, from knife crime. It was like a drug deal gone wrong. He got set up and he actually got stabbed and passed away from it. Six years later, my mum met a man. I can't say I'm a fan of, but I'm happy he came in alive because he brought my two little sisters along, which ended mm. up... If it weren't for them, I wouldn't have changed my life around. And then I was just kind of growing up. And then I say once I hit about 10 to 11 is when my uncles kind of brought me in a game of drug dealing. So all my uncles and my cousins, all of them were drug dealing. Um, even friends around me, they were doing it for their family as well. It was quite big in East and that everyone's family was doing it. And mm -hmm. plus, where we came from, our family came from pubs, mm -hmm. so like they already was like, selling drugs and all that stuff. It just kind of ran for our family. Mm -hmm. um, as I led on, I got to like 12. That's when my two older sisters came around. So my two older sisters, actually, I remember I used to play football with them from like 10. And I say all the sisters, they're not fully, but they are, basically. And I remember once I looked out the window and they were just on the football pitch where we was and then I snuck them into the house because I felt bad because they were just staying out. And then from there, my mum found out that their mum wasn't the best. She was kind of an alcoholic, not looking after them. Didn't even know that they were out, apparently. It was their stepdad that kicked them out. So then from there, they lived with us for up to, like, six years. Wow. But um, while they were with us, they noticed that I was going through that drug dealing as well, going through that whole game. I ended up moving to Kilburn for reasons of, like, getting involved in gangs. I got my house into a lot of trouble. People were coming around to the house to look for me and just stuff like that. My mum wanted to move me out anyway. She was talking to the council. So then they offered Kilburn, where I'm going to be honest didn't really do anything better for me at the start. I moved there. It was the wrong move at the start because when I moved there, when I was in Neasden, we had a problem with the boys from Kilburn. Mm -hmm. So then it only created more of an issue when I first went there. But then after a while, I met a couple older guys. They saw at my young age I wasn't really all there and I was just trying to do anything for money. So they took advantage and I started selling for them as well. And you were how old? When I moved there, I was like 13. So then I think by the time I was selling for them, I was like 14. And you said that your deals got bigger and bigger and you... Yeah, yeah, so, like, I just started doing my own stuff. By the time I hit, like, 15, 16, you notice there's more money in it when you do it for yourself. Well, at the start, I was going to, like, countryside for older people and stuff, going around. My granddad actually lives in Norwich, so then I kind of told them about it and told them, yeah, it's a free area, I could go do it. And then I noticed, why am I telling them? I'd done it myself, which got me into a lot of trouble. I nearly got arrested a few times for it. And then I actually came back. I stopped for a while when I... I hit like 17 because I ended up getting well like when I was 15 I I'm presumably you stabbed. hadn't been going to school nah, like, I went to school here and there but I kept getting kicked out the school I went to was in an area that I was just not cool with it was hard to go into school or come out even when I see boys now that join the programme that always speak to me they're just like 
Yeah, I remember you was never in school because so-and-so was always looking for you. Right. I remember I was, like, 15, and I was going to see my mum at hospital once when we was all getting on the bus. This is the first time. So I've been stabbed three times, and this was the first time, which was, like, a minor one. Anyways, I was, like, 15. And I was on the bus going to see my mum at hospital, and we was going past the other side of Kilburn. Then I'm seeing some other boys from the other side of the scene in the bus, and then kind of ran onto it, started rushing us. I just started to feel it. It was like a pinch on the leg. Cause we were just getting rushed, it was the adrenaline kicking in. So then after noticing I got stabbed and actually got put in the same hospital as my mum, which ended up just making me worse. I just got more involved and that's when I became way more involved with the gang of Kilburn. Started doing the county lines alone, came back, I remember at the age of 18, the same thing happened to me, which happened to my dad was a drug deal gone wrong. Some girl called me, said that she knows someone that wants something, I went there to drop it. It was actually the boys from the other side of Kilburn. They ended up stabbing me in my leg as well again. When I went to the hospital, they were saying I was lucky because it was so close to the artery. And then what killed me from there made me want to change my life is that my mum lost my dad when he was 18 from a drug deal gone wrong. I was 18 and nearly died from it, and that killed my mum. And my sisters as well. Like They witnessed a lot of things that I've done myself and what people's done to me. They've seen it. People's tried to run in the house or they've been there to get older me. And all that stuff, they were impressed by the money that I was making and I just thought it's time for a change. I need to change the life around. And then that's when cousin told me about Key for Life. And, and how did your cousin know about Key for Life? So one of his friends called Amber just started working here. She was doing some voluntary work. Yeah, voluntary yeah. work. She knew about me because she was also like a tomboy, so she was quite cool. So I, yeah. I got along with her and she always tried to tell me that I had potential to do something better and I had a good mindset and stuff, so... When I heard it was her, I was like, you know, I'll give it a try. But I wasn't 200% because I've done loads of, like, charity courses. I've been through, like, Street League, loads of them. Well, you've done that already and it Yeah, I've already helped. done them and it never really, like... But then again, I never put a complete all my effort into it because I was still selling, so it was, like, 50-50 showing up and stuff like that. So she persuaded you to so go along? My cousin you went to persuaded me to. I came in. I remember the first day, clearly, we were in central London. And um, I came up into the office and I just walked in and I, I'm not really comfortable with, I never used to be anyways, comfortable with new people around me. So I thought, you know, it's cool, I'm going to give it a go. But I still wasn't like, Zebra will tell you, I wasn't 100% into it. Like, I didn't really like looking at people. Yeah. I didn't like people trying to look me in my eyes. I'm looking you in the eyes, am I making you feel like No, 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 I'm used to it now. I'm cool with it now. But before, I couldn't look people in their eyes at all. He always had the big furry coat with a big, huge hood. And he died behind it and looked down. Why is eye contact such a thing? Because we're not used to it. I don't know. I feel like when you're with, like, boys and you're in the area... So, for example, me and Ross are from the same area. We wouldn't be chatting to each other, just looking in the eyes. I don't know, it's just, we're not used to it. And then again, we felt like we was always different. So then when you get people that's come from, like, a business world Mm. and all that, and they're looking to your eye, you just feel intimidated. Yeah, yeah. Even though it's like, you didn't want to ever admit that, but you did. So you never want to look at them. I'd always look down, and especially when they're trying to help me. And at that point, I didn't feel like I needed help. And I yeah. did. It's like I didn't want it. Yeah. So then it did take a while. I did go through the programme. I came to all the residentials, even the ones that were spare. I was always trying to get out of the area, just trying to get away from all the boys. Cause I and just when you knew. say the residentials, is that going to Somerset with the yeah, yeah. So and QPR? Yeah, Somerset, then Scotland. Scotland. We went Dublin. Mm-hmm. We've done loads of it. I just any opportunity to get out of the area. And what I do you think it was do. that changed. changed something for you? Is it being out of your area? Was yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. So being out of the area and being with more positive people is number one. I feel like what the company done to help me fully change because I was always changing during the course. I'm, I'm sure you could say the same. If I feel Absolutely. like during the course I was changing, but even when the course finished, it wasn't like I was completely there. No. I was still one foot in, one foot out, and I was trying to become 
completely out. And then if it weren't for the ongoing support, as I said in the mm-hmm. Scrubs prison the other day, I told everyone, even the sergeant, I was like, the ongoing support is what changed me. Because even when I thought I'm done from this course and I thought I'm just going to go back to normal now, they still never gave up on me. They mm-hmm. still came back to keep trying, keep trying to see me, taking me to residentials, giving me all these opportunities. And that's when Key Mental came up. And so you finished the programme and you are now a caseworker. Yeah. How did that come about? So I became a key mentor and we went away on holiday. That's when we went to Dublin. We mm-hmm. was coming up with an idea and that's when I made the idea to make the short film. That was about two years ago. And then after Eva saw that, I was really interested in actually helping and trying to make a difference. Not only to all these members, to the company, just trying to make everything big trying to get out there and get loads of my friends into it as well. And then um, we went to Scotland, and then Eva just saw how I was with the guys, I'm sure, and she pulled me aside and was like... It was started, it was like part-time, come as a caseworker. Part-time turned to full-time because even though she was telling me part-time, if the guys called me on a day that I was meant to be off, I'd still go meet them, even if I weren't really getting paid. I just wanted to help. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. How many caseworkers do you have? Three and a half. One's part-time. Yeah. And I would say with Corey, you know, he's like a little flower. That If you saw him when he first came, he was <laughs> a wilted rose. And he is just unbelievable how he's changed. And, you know, for me, people who work for me, and I am tough, and Rory would be the first to say she's on your case. You know, I give them a hard time at times because, you know, I know that time is of the essence with men who've been in prison. You can't hang around and wait because from one day to the next, if you're not on top of them, things can go wrong. And with Corey, the dramatic change, you know, that I saw and the whole team saw was just so extraordinary in front of my eyes. But it wasn't even that. It's like now he has responsibility. And, you know, when you, as you have here, a number of people who work for you, you always know the people who take real responsibility. Like, even though Corey will moan a bit at times if things aren't going quite the way he wants, he is incredibly good. Like, he drives a project forward. So he is in charge of his at-risk recruitment. He is in charge of making sure that those men have somewhere to stay, that everything's lined up for them. He is in charge of making sure they go on and get work and they're not going back to a a life of crime. And watching him now have to run him, and he sent me a report yesterday, which was the first time I've really been... I've seen amazing things Corey does, but when I saw his report where he colour-coded to me his reds, because the reds are the ones you're worrying about, and he was showing me on his latest cohort where they all are. That's Mm. what I want to see, because with funders and people give us money for these programmes, it's all about measurement and impact. It's like you with your business here, you know. 
how many people do you employ as a charity? So we're up to about 17, but we have a couple of people who work nearly full-time, but they're voluntary as well. So probably on the payroll, about 14 to 15. But and then that's funded by donations? Trust funds, foundations. The prisons give us a smaller bit if we're delivering. And then we run balls, anything. Like if people want to do, you know, just giving or they want to do payroll giving, that's the sort of thing we're now looking to increase. Our big pot we've got to increase is unrestricted funds, which is where do we get the money from that's not a contract to a specific part of the charity and that's our biggest challenge now because there's very little government money that goes into very rehabilitation little. isn't there yeah, yeah, yeah. it's not a sexy actually, subject i remember know. hearing maury stewart at a partly conservatives talk that i went to not because i'm a raging conservative but because it was on the prison system mm. and i was interested to hear him and jeffrey archer i'm another ex-offender speak mm. and someone was saying how remarkable Rory Stewart had been. He'd been the only prison minister who'd actually increased the government budget um, for the prison system, which I thought was amazing. He's fun to watch, isn't he? He's impressive. Hopefully he'll be mayor of London. Let's hope so. I know, I'm in his camp. Ross, you're sitting here very quietly. Uh, You're up, you're up. So, can we have your story? I mean, first of all, I've got goosebumps even sitting there just listening to (laughs) Rory and and Eva's story. That's the first time I've heard their story, so, yeah, it's definitely humbling to hear and know kind of the background of you know the people that I've been working with Mm. but me I grew up in Hackney I was raised by a single mum I've never met my father so obviously it seems like a recurring theme but I feel like that's something I have to kind of put in there for people to understand Mm. but I mean growing up you know an only child as well so I had no siblings I kind of feel like for me school was the playground so you know not having kind of anyone at home to play with I went to school and I didn't really pay any attention you know I was kind of as they say the class clown it played a big part I mean the only time I really worried was when they said you know they were calling my mum that was the only time I really got scared (laughs) (laughs) you were scared of your mum yeah but I mean primary school was an experience and then moving on to secondary school Again, kind of the same spiel. Teacher saying to my mum, you know, he's a good kid. He's got, you know, a good head on his shoulders. But the only thing is he doesn't pay attention in class or, you know, he's distracting kind of others. But again, I think kind of as I got into my teenage years, obviously you start to kind of realise loads of different external factors, maybe such as mum's not doing so well financially, kind of other family dynamics. So I go to my friend's house, his mum's there, his dad's there, he's got siblings. Did you feel a pressure to provide because you didn't have a dad and it was just you and your mum? It's interesting you say that. I think I didn't feel a pressure to provide because my mum, she hid it. It was a really good secret that maybe, you know, times were hard. But I kind of wanted to be self-sufficient to the point where I could, if I wanted something, I could get it. Mm. Even just to the point now where I look back, it's kind of crazy to think, but I'd go to one of my friend's house and I remember, you know, he had mum and dad at home. And my mum always used to say, you know, I'm the only one here, but I'd never go out and beg anybody else for like money or anything else. Like wherever we don't have, we go with and there's this one friend I used to go to his house and I remember like the lights used to go off and when I think about it now it sounds actually crazy but we used to like be chilling in the dark because they had no money for electricity yeah they'd have no money for electricity like at the time as a kid it doesn't really sink in but now looking back at it I mean that was something that we used to make kind of you know jokes about it but But now looking back it's pretty serious you know what I mean so I remember like just thinking I never want to have to be in a position where basically you have to say I can't afford something or something's an issue for me Mm -hmm. to kind of pay for So, yeah, all those external factors, obviously growing up in Hackney as well with the prevalence of gangs, 
fortunately the estate that we lived in it must have been a blessing but it's like there's loads of gangs in Hackney but our estate was actually being redeveloped during the time that all of us were growing up so there were six tower blocks they knocked down five kept one and redeveloped the whole estate so our estate changed into more of kind of senior citizens moving in so we didn't have an older influence right. which was good I said, yeah, you're growing up with all these impressionable young guys in such close proximity. That's right. Very true. I think that kind of close proximity is a big kind of factor for the kind of issues that we face today with youth crime and violence. I think everybody's a bit too concentrated in one location. When did crime come into your life? I'd say probably from about 16, 17. I used to like little robberies. We used to. a little robbery. Okay, so I remember like. From like year 9, 10, 11, I remember people used to come outside our school and these guys were kids that never went to school and they would rob kids after school. So it was literally just like a you're waiting until 3 o'clock yeah. to basically just make sure you get on the bus and make it home without being robbed for any, any of your possessions. So for me, I remember looking at that and just thinking, this is happening to us, why don't we do this to somebody else? And it's the wrong way to look at it now, but I mean, me and a few friends... We then used to decide, okay, we're going to leave school and then go to another school and rob some kids from another school. So it just started off with small petty robberies, robbing people's phones, some money they had. It was really small stuff. But I think when it escalated was um, kind of realising that drugs were quite prevalent in our community. So I started smoking weed probably in year 11, just kind of leaving school. And then obviously got into selling. And from selling drugs... I then got into just looking at little different schemes. And for me, I feel like now, looking back, it was just my kind of way of being entrepreneurial, of looking at different ways for me to kind of make funds, for me to be able to, you know, buy whatever it is that I wanted. I mean, it is entrepreneurial. You can't what eat. kind of selling drugs or money laundering and stuff? So, I mean, I sold drugs, but then, for instance, I got caught for a robbery when I was 17, I went to court, this was my first experience with kind of judiciary system, and I got a suspended sentence, and it was me and three of my friends, and literally I was the person, we were on our way out, on a night out, I saw a guy on the train, he had a phone that I liked, I told my friend I'm going to rob this guy, and two of them decided to kind of follow me. I robbed this guy's phone, and we got caught, and from there I remember that was our first kind of contact with the law and from then on we all got 300 hours community service but from then on for me that was like a graduation because I went to community service and at community service I met a guy who sold counterfeit money Mm. and he was selling a thousand pounds worth of 50 pound notes for like 125 pound so for instance I go to him and get like five thousand pounds in fake money use that money now to go and buy various stuff from Gumtree or from shops or from wherever I could shift it to basically yeah. make it convert it into real money so yeah. that was another avenue I got in just because I'd kind of done this first robbery and then I got caught again and that was actually for a sale I went to go and buy two Samsung S4s from a Russian guy in Sloan Square. And it was funny because like every time I went to go and purchase things, I'd go suited up, I'd go looking very smart. And I think this guy just, from the first phone call, he kind of knew, you know, something was up. But yeah, when I got in the car, it's so mad because he pulled up in a Bentley. I don't know what I was thinking, but I got in the Bentley, I gave him the money. He just looked at the money and he looked at me and he just locked the doors. <laughs> and he was like, you're lucky because if this was in Russia, 
I'd take you to my house and <laughs> I'd like I'd beat you up. But he was like, I'm going to call the police. So yeah, literally police were patrolling the road and yeah, he called them over and that was the second time I'd got arrested. What was your sentence then? So then I was actually still on a suspended sentence for the prior robbery. But as soon as I got arrested, I kind of was like, oh wow, okay, this is quite serious. Because the first time I was with two other people, which makes you kind of feel comfortable. This time I'm by myself. You're on your own. So I was like, okay, I need to kind of get my life on track. I enrolled in college like the week after I'd been arrested, so they bailed me. And did you enroll because you knew that would get you bail? Or because you were interested? I think both. I enrolled because I knew it was going to get me bail. And then I enrolled as well because I wanted to do my mum proud and, you know, kind of get an education, go to university and, you know, show that I'm kind of not just, you know, a waste. So did you go to college? Yeah, so I went to college. I did an access course for a year. During that course, me and my tutor developed a really good relationship in which he actually wrote a fantastic statement for me to give to the judge. And the judge read that and he said, you know, the person that I'm reading about here is not the same person that, you know, committed this crime. So he gave me another suspended sentence. And it was at that point that I kind of saw my mum distraught. And I remember it was in Elephant and Castle, Southwark Crown Court and... From there on, I made the decision that day that I'd never come back to prison or put my mum through that again. So did you do any time? No, I didn't. I just ended up getting another community service, put on another community service programme. I think I got a fine. And that was the end of Yeah, that, that, was, crime. that, was, that was the end of my crime until 25. I didn't really kind of involve myself heavily in crime. Um, okay. So I and worked it, legitimate jobs. And there's something changed in 25? So, um, unfortunately, I didn't stick to my word and I landed myself back in the same situation. But At 25? Yeah, but right. I want to say, obviously, during that period of time, I'd not engaged in kind of crime heavily and I'd worked for a European distribution company working as an independent kind of business operative, selling some of their products within the kind of distribution network. So that was an interesting experience because it kind of taught me loads of sales skills, personal development. I was able to kind of speak on stage in front of two, three hundred people and also build a team as well. And that kind of really gave me the confidence to, I think, want to start my business today. You did that up until the age of 25. You're 28 now. Between 21 and 25, yeah. So what happened at 25? So I was legit up until 25 and I went to Thailand on my 25th for three weeks and at that point in time, I was working for a jewellery company, Mapping and Web. And on my holiday, I went through a lot of soul searching. Like I started questioning whether working for somebody else was something that I really wanted to do, whether I wanted to start my own business or not. And I came back with a very different mindset, but I think I channeled it in the wrong direction because an associate of mine at the time who was already had an established kind of drug network, I said to him, OK, why don't we develop a partnership so that we can obviously amass quite a bit of money. And then my plan was to then go and use that money and then start my own business. Uh-huh. So yeah, when I came out from Thailand, I quit my job and we started to kind of work in the operation together. And dealing that, together. Dealing together, right. yeah. And I think that was a very interesting experience for me because I went from a full-time job to basically a full-time drug dealer in the space of two weeks in my head, I saw it as, okay, I've been legit for five years. I know how to kind of handle myself and I had to talk to people. So I think I can evade police. So yeah, that was my plan. I mean, why I say it was a very interesting experience because it really got me to understand myself. And what happened? So how did that play out? This was your plan. It's 28 in May. Yeah. And did you get caught? What happened? Yeah. So I was doing it for six months, got arrested. Mm-hmm. And I went guilty. My associate went not guilty. And my solicitor basically said to me, on the day that I went to court, they said he's had all charges dropped against him because I went guilty and 
there was fingerprints on the canister in which we had the drugs in. There was my car, so my solicitor basically said that they kind of think that you're the guy running the show, which wasn't the case at all. And I decided to plead guilty and ended up getting a 28-month custodial sentence, but I ended up serving 10 months and did four months on HTC curfew. So, so yeah, where I, did you I, go? As soon as I got sentenced, I, I went to Thameside, HMP Thameside. Um, that? That's near Woolwich. Next door right. to Belmarsh. Belmarsh. Yeah, yeah. Oh. I remember I used to open my windows and look at Belmarsh and be like, I never want to go there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so three months in Thameside and the rest of my sentence was in Brixton. Okay. And that's obviously where, you know, saw key for life. Before you talk to us about Key for Life and how that's been working for you, what was life in prison like, as you imagined, better or worse? For me, I'd done a lot of introspection before I went to jail because I kind of felt like I'd wasted my life. Just Even just by selling drugs for that period of time, I felt like uh, there's nothing I can do to bounce back. But going to jail, I kind of set myself a plan as to what it was I wanted to do when I got out. So I set myself a target to read a book a week while I was in jail. I also set out a business plan for the current business I have now. And it was really just about staying focused. So for me, Joe was a very good place to be at that point in my life because I was able to take a lot from it and not be distracted by kind of exterior forces. And having been there, is it a deterrent against reoffending or not? I mean, you're clearly a bright, articulate guy with a lot to offer the world. And, Thank you. You know, that's really obvious, but you're very different to quite a lot, I would say. I mean... For the average prisoner? I don't want to say it's a deterrent deterrent because at at the end of the day, there's still something in me. I think the reason why I even went to... It's like your alter ego. The reason why I went into crime, I think, was for me to say to myself, okay, this is an avenue I haven't tried. Let me just actually fully try it and see what happens. But, you know, God was on my side and he he didn't want that because I could have become a very successful drug dealer and then got done maybe 10 years down the line and then, you know, ended up doing a 10-year sentence or 15-year sentence. So So what's different now? So you met Key for Life when you were in Brixton Mm -hmm. and who did you meet? So there was a workshop and Corey and Yasin were kind of at a stand. So it was a workshop with loads of different companies who came into the prison. It was like a fair Um, and Key for Life were there and... I had a chat with Corey and uh, Yasin. They seemed like really cool guys. I read through the programme and then they mentioned that they were bringing horses into the prison, which I was very, very shocked by. I kind of thought, you know, these guys are never going to really bring horses into the prison. How does that even (laughs) work? But in my head, I said, you know what, I'll look into this. Because in Thameside, I'd met another charity and I just thought, you know what, I'm going to take as much as I can from this experience to be able to kind of make me a better person when I come out. And then I saw that they actually brought horses into the prison. So I was like, yeah, I'm definitely getting in touch when I get out. So were you there when the horses came in? Yeah. Oh, was that cool? I didn't actually get to do the programme because I had such little time on my sentence right. when they came in. Right, right. But yeah, I saw the horses on the yard. I saw the guys interacting with them. And you saw the impact that it was having 100%. on the 100%. It was a talk of the wing. It's like when people say, like, for instance, the way our wing's yard was, the whole of the jail can't see where our yard is. So when you tell people on the other side of the jail there's horses in the jail, they think that you're lying. Yeah. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, to actually see them bring horses in, it was crazy. So you got out. Mm-hmm. Good behaviour. Yeah. Were you on tag when you got out? Yes, I came out, spent four months on curfew. What was that like? I mean, it was pretty good because I left Hackney. So for me, it was just a way to kind of get back into the community. Were you made to go and live somewhere else? Could you go back into your old community or did you have to go and live somewhere else? Yeah, I could have gone back. But I think for me, going to jail for the crime that I went for and then understanding like my environment. Also, like there was actually issues within my estate 
which were going on at the time, like the guys in my area found out because they've seen this guy go from estate agencies dressed in suits to, you know, pulling up in a different car every two weeks. And they kind of knew something was up. Yeah. And I think they suspected that I was selling drugs. So I know they were trying to confront me. I heard a lot in the grapevine that they were apparently going to try and rob me for a watch that I had. So for me, I just felt like it was time for a fresh start to get out of there and just move. So I requested to be put in a hostel upon release. Okay. And you were at the same time going along to Keith Life. Yeah. And taking part in the programme. Mm-hmm. And that obviously had a really big impact mm-hmm. on you. You were involved with the charity now. Plus, you started your own business. Yeah. So... Firstly, your own business is what? So we're a property platform company. We rent rooms to young professionals in the Reading area. At the moment, we've got one property which we've leased from a landlord on a five-year term. And we've got five tenants who will work for Virgin Media. So our plan is to obviously scale that up. So you rent the room as a workspace? No, we rent the rooms for them to live in. Okay, right, right, right. So it's a house that we've leased and we sublet the rooms. Okay. Yeah. So, so far so good. So far so good, yeah. Amazing. Exciting. And you're also involved with Keith Life. Mm -hmm. In what capacity? So I've actually done a employer's workshop where I've actually presented obviously my business to some of the people who are participating in the at-risk program, you know, to kind of get them to understand that it's something that they can do as well. It's something that they can start up. I think a lot of crime in that kind of area is fueled by financial gain. And I feel like, you know, you thinking that there's not another way out. Yeah. And what do you think is different this time? Is it key for life? Is it having been to prison? Is it being older and wiser? Like, Yeah, I think it's a whole host of those things. To be honest, when I look back at myself now, it's that philosophy of, you know, me wanting everything now. Like, I wanted to be a millionaire yesterday or I wanted mm. kind of life to be going perfectly well at 25. It wasn't, so I kind of thought, ah, maybe I might try and do something else. But for me, you know, it comes back to that same quote that Rome wasn't built in a day. And now I think reading so many books, the books that I read were all kind of mindset you know, positive self-help books and reading 58 books in 10 months put my mindset in that position that it was like, I used to sit in my bed and and read something and be like, why did I even do that to get myself in jail? Do you know what I mean? And it was like, you've got so much potential. Even these people who are on this program, like Maya, I met Maya in Brixton. And it's like, you see so many people in prison, you have so much potential, but they've just channeled it in the wrong direction. They just need to channel it somewhere else. Do you think, though, you are exceptions to the rule? Like, as I said before, you're clearly a bright guy. Like, for a lot of guys, it's just the writing on the wall. No. No? Like, what can we as a society do to prevent this? I mean, your programme for 10 to 16-year-olds sounds incredible and essential. Yeah. I think he's a very motivated human being, as is Maya. There's a number of them who are very motivated, but I think it's the impatience. So when you hear his Mm. story, which I didn't know the whole story, it's interesting to see when he was doing well, before we met him, he reverted back to crime. Yeah. And I would hope now that Key for Life has given you the insights and a new way of running your life that you don't have such temptation. I don't know, would I be right? Yeah, 100%. I mean, my mindset's in a very different place to where it was when I engaged in the crime. I think now there's not even a thought in my head of going back to a life of crime. It's just the fact that, you know, being legit and kind of building something for yourself is way better than 
having to look behind your back That's or right. worry if somebody's yeah. chasing you or worry if you owe somebody money or do you know what I mean? Peace of mind for me is now kind of the ultimate goal. Yeah, and you see what I would say is that a lot of the younger ones are after the money. Yeah. Everyone's after earning quick cash mm-hmm. and whether it's drug dealing, robbery or whatever. But when they, like you've just said, peace of mind, because that's all dirty money. So it doesn't feel right anyway. It doesn't leave you feeling great. You know, you might have a wad of notes under your bed, but, you know, what you've just said, the peace of mind is probably the most important thing. The problem with the younger kids is, you know, they're going through the motions, aren't they? They're watching the big guys with the big cars rock up, the lifestyle they've got, and they think they want that. And it seems like hard work. And as you both said, you know, you didn't have father figures, and that has a huge impact. I mean, you know, not having... I feel like not having any father figures. uh, Well, no, I'm not saying, like, it's a good thing, but it kind of gives you that one step ahead of realising you're kind of the man of the house and you've got to kind of mature from a young age do you know what I mean because I've got younger siblings so it's like at the time I weren't looking at it like oh I just got to stay legit and I was looking at it like I got to make money for them that's it that's That's it so you're providing I feel like that's how it was at the start and then after a while you come to realise as I said when I met Key for Life it's not all about just bringing the money to the table it's actually about showing them what life Mm -hmm. and all the things that's going to come across in their paths and how to deal with certain things I feel like what we need to do to help and I say every time with youth is that we need more organisations for youth because Key for Life's mm. massive and I hope it gets bigger and bigger and works mm. everywhere, even out of England and in other countries. But we need more. Yeah. We need more in different places. And for people listening, I mean, for me sitting here who had such a different upbringing to you guys and completely different opportunities and a father figure and an amazing education, it makes me feel so lucky. It makes you realise that you know, it's not nature, it's nurture and that it's so important that we as businesses get involved into our bit and back to my point mm-hmm. yeah. in how little funding goes into the prison system, that goes into rehabilitation, that goes into what you're doing for the 10 to 16 year olds. You know, for people listening who might be wanting to get involved, what is it that you as the founder of the charity want from people you know if we can raise the profile of key for life to people in businesses is it placements is it mentors what is it that you need is it fundraising all of those things I think you know what it's a combination but what I would say is that last year Niall Rogers from Chic launched our United Flag is a kite mark that we will be giving to companies like yours and others people who actually employ offenders because at the moment what we know is that 49% of companies in Britain will not hire somebody if they've been in prison We also know that 51% of companies believe that people who've been in prison do not have the right skill set to work. So we have a big, big challenge. And um, to my mind, this flag is going to actually encourage businesses in Britain to be inclusive with their workplaces, not looking at an exclusive workplace, which is what I feel a lot of companies are doing. We all need to play our part. Mm. When you mention the word prisoner or you mention the word prison, a lot of people get very turned off by that. Which you can understand, I think. absolutely right. Of course they do. But when you hear people like Ross and Corey, you know, they've understood they've done wrong but they want to make a change. It's those steps now that we need. So the biggest challenge to people listening to this is, right, work placements, three-day work placements. We want companies not only to offer work placements but jobs. We also want people to help with mentoring. There's such a great experience. It's such a development tool. It's one of the greatest things you can do by personally helping somebody who's been through the prison system or at risk of going to prison. And then, of course, importantly, if people suddenly think, oh, that sounds quite interesting, key for life, we'd love help. You know, there's all sorts of ways 
is funding is really important. You know, there might be somebody who wants to run a marathon, somebody might want to run an event for us, somebody might want to do something with some of our young men that's going to generate some money. It doesn't matter all down to payroll giving. You know, money is important. We can't do this without. But I would say it's the opportunities that Mm. businesses can provide is probably the most important thing. And just to change their mindset and change their policies so they will hire people and give them another chance. This is untapped potential we have sitting here. Yeah. And for people who might be nervous about having an ex-offender into the workplace it was a question that I had has anything ever gone wrong you know I've got a load of women here I'm bringing in people with a criminal record you know I've got to protect my workforce is this safe it is right yeah, and, and it's and all it. very pleased and it you're is. in touch you know you're chaperoning to it. work you yeah. are very very we involved guys. we do risk assessments you can never say never yeah. anything can happen in any business but what I can say is that we hold our hands We know the men. We bring them here on their work placements. When they get a job, we're here to support both the company and with the placement and the individual. And that's the most important thing. It's that tailored support they need. Some of them find it difficult to get out of bed in the morning. You know, whether we've got to go in and get them out of bed, we will do that. And a lot of these guys have never done. Never worked before. And I remember one of your team saying to me, you know, these are guys who've never done a day's work. You know, yeah. they've turned up to school when they felt like it. Mm-hmm. Someone's booted them out of bed in prison. And, they, you know, they've never had that responsibility. So I think one thing I just would say is that if you've drug dealt all your life, and Corey would explain, and you haven't gone to school, so you've tried to raise money for your mother because you hate to see her struggle, what then happens is by the time you're 19, you have to question, what can I do with my life, right? Yeah. So even the social pantry yourselves, the social pantry have hired 15 people who are near here, you know, that's out of 100 people, they've hired 15 offenders. I mean, if they can do that, anybody can. The difficulty, yeah. and I think Corey would always say, and he's very good with his young men, if you don't have any skills, don't worry about that. Let's get you a CSCS card, you know, a construction industry card. Let's get you a ticket for this, because that's the hardest thing. When I sit with the prisoners this morning, over half of them have never worked legit at Brixton mm-hmm. Prison, the ones who are in our group. So you've got to then allay their fears by saying, don't worry, there are lots of things out there you could do. Now, yes, you take a massive pay drop because you're not earning thousands. Mm. But as you say, you've got the peace of mind. And what that's what we're trying to do is change these yeah. men's mindsets. If you're sitting there listening, thinking, well, I work in media or I work in mm-hmm. marketing or whatever it is, and a guy out of prison is not going to be interested an initial work taster is just about Absolutely. getting them in a different mind frame, getting them, you know, used to turning up on time. And so don't be put off. Don't think that your industry counts you out yeah. of, you know, being appealing to key for life. Mm-hmm. And if you're sitting there also thinking, I'm going to go to my boss, to my employer, and they're going to say no, go to them and just get them to say yes. Work on the answer being yes, <laughs> not on it being no. And on that note, I'm going to say thank you all thank so you. much. I, it's thank just, it's just blows you. my done. mind what you guys achieved. Eva, wow, I salute you. And I look forward to working with you, hopefully, for many more years ahead. Great. Thank you, my lovely. Thank, thank you. you. Thank That's you. it for today. If you enjoyed that, then do please rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends. We will be back soon. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.